0: It's been a long time since we've been back in First Peter and um, was uh, just hearing from uh, somebody that uh, said we've had some visitors who've been here I think for the last five weeks and they said they haven't heard me preach once. And so it's been five weeks about so since we've been in First Peter and so what I want to do just briefly by way of reintroducing us again to this book, I want to just read uh, the earlier part, uh, just the first uh, eight, nine verses of First Peter. ...before we get to the passage that we're going to read for today. So would you open with me to First Peter chapter 1... ...as God, through the Apostle Peter, reminds us of who we are... ...and then infinitely, more importantly, who he is, who God is. Peter, an Apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world... ...scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia... ...who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. Of your souls. Would you pray with me as we enter back into this book? Father, we thank you so much that so much of our church vision resonates with this book. And we know it's not because our vision came first and then this book, but rather that our vision was birthed out of your word and out of scripture and out of these passages of which the apostle writes. And we thank you, God, that what the apostle wrote is not just from the mind or the heart or the pen of man but that God that you carried him along by your Holy Spirit, inspiring him with the words that you so desired to be communicated, God, from you and your kingdom to us and into our world. And though we see you not now with our eyes of flesh, we love you and we believe in you and see you with our hearts of faith. We ask you, God of grace, Christ, That all the fullness of the Trinity would be here in the foreknowledge of God, the sanctifying work of the Spirit and Jesus Christ and your sprinkled blood, our great High Priest, in whose name we pray. We pray these things, God, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you all can remember back to uh, school. I remember one time I was at a, at a Blockbuster, and at, by that time I'd been out of school for uh, many, many years, many years, and, um, and I remember uh, as I was just, there was a, a child and daughter, uh, a, a daughter and a, and a parent, and they, they were picking out videos, and the child wanted to get two or three, and the parent said, no, you can't, because it's a school night. And those two words started to echo around in my brain, school night, and brought all kinds of memories back to me. And school, as we prayed over, is an institution God appointed for the raising up of our young children and of the next generation. At the same time, there has been a great ambivalence that many people have had towards school and which C.S. Lewis shared. And so now I'm reading yet another biography on C.S. Lewis. And this is a man who spent most of his life in school, either as a student or as an educator. And he had this love-hate relationship with school, so much so that at the end of his own uh, autobiography... And surprised by joy, he closes it this, this way, and he talks about the words uh, in the, from the, uh, the words of the Narnia Chronicles. Then Aslan turned to them and said, "You are as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended, and this is the morning." And so ends the last battle in the Narnia Chronicles, and the way that Lewis thought of the ending of his life. At the, at the end of his life, he. Th- Thought of it in terms of the term is over now and the eternal holidays, which uh, there will be no end. The summer has come forever and ever and ever. To fully realize the import of these words, you have to know a little bit about Lewis's early upbringing and his early school years. And it gets confusing as I read this biography because growing up in Britain, what they call public school is what we call secondary school. I mean, what they call preparatory school is what we call secondary school what they call preparatory schools, what we would call a a private school, which they also call a college, which is to prepare them for private school, which is what we call college. And so this is just kind of the school system in Britain, at least of that time when, when Lewis was growing up. And this is what he writes in his journal. Life at a vile boarding school is this way a good preparation for the Christian life, that it teaches one to live by hope. I think it's that's an amazing statement. To live life at a vile boarding school, and this is good preparation for the Christian life, that it teaches one to live by hope, even in a sense by faith. For at the beginning of each term, home and the holidays are so far off that it's hard to realize them as to realize heaven. They have the same pitiful unreality when confronted with immediate horrors. Today's geometry blots out the distant end of the term as tomorrow's operation, and he means surgery, blots out the hope of paradise. But yet, term after term, the unbelievable happened. Fantastical and astron- astronomical figures like this time, six weeks, shrank into practical figures like this time, next week, and this time, tomorrow, and the almost supernatural bliss of the last day punctually appeared you understand what he's talking about? He's likening the end of life and coming on of death as a release and onto a holiday, an eternal holiday when the term is, is over. I think that's, that's an amazing thought and so that he would say that living in his school was a living by hope, a living by hope, so that no matter how horrible things might be and he got he was somebody who was terribly bullied and who never made it high up in the social hierarchy of school, no matter how horrible things were, he kept on living on what was going to happen in the future, a living by hope. And so that he would say to himself, this time in six months, this time in six weeks, this time in three days, this time next week. Do you guys remember doing this at the end of a school year? This time next week, I will be in holiday. I'll be in summer. This is instructive, he says for our life now, which is also a living by hope. Christian life is a living by hope so that no matter what we endure in this present life, there is at this time 40 years from now, this time 30 years from now, this time eight years from now and as life continues to unfold and these year and near passes by, that we will come to a time when we do not know but God divinely appoints and where we will be saying, this time in six weeks, this time in a day, this time tomorrow, I will be with Him in paradise. This living by hope is what First Peter is so much about, and it is to remove the sting of death from us, so that we do not fear death as something that we live in denial of, or something that grips us with great anxiety. But we see it as the proper passage from this life now and into the next, that death, in the same way that Christ saw it, was an access way from this life unto the next age. The person that maybe who, one of the people that, whose biographies helped me make this rotation in my mind of the way that I thought about death was, was Jonathan Edwards and reading his biography. And Edwards, as he, the people recount the last words that he spoke on his deathbed, Edwards gave some words to his children. He gathered all of his children around him at his deathbed, and Edwards said to them, And now you will be left fatherless. That's an amazing statement. And now you will be left fatherless. And he preaches to them his, a, a, a final sermon on his deathbed. And he says, I hope that my passing on, and you, that the fact that you will be losing your earthly father will be an inducement for you to seek your heavenly father. And then he gave some words to the people around him to, and to his friends. And then when he was finished saying the last thing that he wanted to say, his last words of edification and encouragement, to those he most dearly loved, his biographer says that he started to look around when he was done speaking to man. And he started to look around on his deathbed and said, And now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my true and never-failing friend? Where is Jesus now? So much was his character in dying that his physician wrote these words and said, death has surely lost its sting to this man and that same way we don't want to recoil from death something that is so far beyond our control it is something that we see under the sovereign appointment of God this is the hope to which First Peter invites us to when it says praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection, a living hope through the resurrection. And so we don't do this uh, in our church, and and there's there's some worth of doing these things. There are older churches that go through what they call catechisms. One of the great catechisms of the church in history is one that was written in 1563 called the Heidelberg Catechism. And all a catechism is is a a way of educating people on the great doctrines of Christianity. And as catechisms are constructed, they are structured around a question and an answer. And question 58 says, What comfort do you derive from the article of the life everlasting? Meaning the doctrine of the life everlasting. What comfort do you derive from the doctrine of the life everlasting? And the answer is that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy After this life, I shall possess perfect bliss, such as I has not seen nor heard, neither has entered into the heart of man, therein to praise God forever. Let me read that answer one more time. That since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life, I shall possess perfect bliss, such as I has not seen nor heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. Therefore, praise be to God forever. This forward-looking orientation is what First Peter points us to. A cutting clear of the past and a living in the present as it takes us powerfully into the future. This future-oriented nature is the way that the entire Bible, both Old and New Testaments, are constantly pointing us to. So that in the verses that we had read to us, starting from verse 10, concerning this salvation... The prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come, that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest of care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And even angels long to look upon these things. This passage of scripture is telling us that the entire Old Testament was not written primarily, even though it was written to the people of the time, it was not written primarily for them, but the prophets who spoke in the Old Testament, meaning those who spoke of God, so this includes Moses and all the writers of the Old Testament, that they were writing for the future, and they were writing actually for our benefit and our encouragement. There's a future oriented scope in the scriptures, so that the Old Testament looks to the New Testament, the next age, and the entire New Testament looks into the forward, into looks forward into the next age, which is the kingdom of God and its fulfillment that comes to us. This does not sit well and it is out of shape in the way that this world conforms and shapes us. Because if anything that we want in As modern people, we want to have it now, and it can't come quick enough. We are always in the present in such a way that we want things to be immediate. And if it doesn't have a payoff right now in this life, we can't see any benefit from it. And so a lot of Christianity is focused and shaped so that what will benefit your life immediately in the now, and in the entire New Testament, it is looking at life in the now from the perspective of eternity, from the next age, to live our lives in such a way so that it is in conformity, not with the life that we live in the present, in the age of the present, but the life that we are to receive in the future, as it says in the scripture, as when Jesus Christ is revealed. It's in our prayers when we say that thy kingdom come, and Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the certainty of it is something that God wants us to build our hope upon. And so let me take you just a little bit back into these previous verses. And verse 6. In this, meaning the future inheritance of the kingdom of God and in all its fulfillment, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine, and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. What the Scriptures want us to make no mistake about is that there is a certainty by God's sovereign power by which we will be given these things, the grace that is to be revealed. The Scriptures talk about it in a way that God shields us by His power, keeps heaven for us, and allows us faithfully to make that connection so that even if we are faithless, He will remain faithful. And so allow us in His faithfulness to cross with our faith unbroken from this life into the next life. And the importance of that is that God wants us to know that now in the present so to be able to endure trial. And it's that heart in which Christ spoke to Simon Peter, the writer of this text, and Simon, he already, in his, in his arrogance, he, knew, he thought that they would never betray God, that he would never in any way uh, shake in his faith. Jesus knew better. And in Luke 22:31, he says to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And already he's letting them know what's going to happen in the future. In the future you're already gonna betray. But he also says there I have prayed for you so that in that moment when you will need it, I have prayed for you so that your faith will not fail. I'm gonna keep you by my power so that your faith will not even though in your faithlessness, in your betrayal, your faith will not break. And I'll hold on to your faith and keep on carrying you faithfully through that trial which Simon passed through and Jesus wanted Simon to be so sure that he uses these words, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Not if, but when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. He's already letting Simon know that there's going to be a time where you are going to shake, but afterwards, I've I've prayed for you so that your faith will not fail, you'll be carried through it, and then you're going to turn back. When you turn back, strengthen your brothers. There is a line by which God carries you faithfully from wherever you are, from wherever and whenever you are, all the way in and through eternity. And that's what First Peter is anchoring us on in this first chapter. That God is taking you and carrying you faithfully from this life and into the next so that your faith is not going to fail. And God wants you to know this and rest in it and bank your hope upon it. And yet there's a strange way That sometimes we take that and we distort that into an unbiblical way. This thing that we've called in our doctrines, in our articles of faith, the assurance of faith, the assurance of faith, that once I'm saved, I'm completely saved, and the sovereign God who converted me and gave me a new birth into this living hope, He's going to carry me faithfully unto the end and for all eternity. And we take that assurance of faith, and something strange happens as it sometimes hits upon our flesh and to a passivity. And this next part, which we're going to take a brief look at in First Peter, corrects us. Biblically, the assurance of faith that God is shielding us by His power, going to carry us faithfully from this life into the next, never results in passivity. It's biblically unthinkable. This is the way that he writes in, starting from verse 13. And there's a huge therefore. In other words, because of the living hope that we've been given, because of the inheritance that we've been given to be revealed, the grace that is going to be revealed when Jesus Christ comes. Therefore, in verse 13, prepare your minds for action, it says. Prepare your minds for action. So the certainty, our conviction, that I'm not, I'm not going to falter here. I'm going to be carried faithfully all the way and I'm going to be given this inheritance which is being kept for me. This is not a cause for my passivity, but this certainty and the hope that I have biblically inspires me now to be preparing my mind for action. That's the NIV translation of it, which is a fine translation. Prepare your minds for action. But some of you who have a, a more literal translation, like the NASB, the words literally are to gore, gird the loins of your mind. And have you, I don't know if, you, if, if that expression is at all... Uh, if you've, you ever, I don't think you've ever used that expression. If kind of that expression is at all familiar to you, gird your loins. And it's an old Hebraic expression that's being, that was kind of carried through the medieval times, and which is why that it's fallen out in our modern translation in the NIV. But the girding your loins—do you guys know what girding your loins means? That, that metaphor—it means to prepare for action. But to, does that, does that, is there a word picture in your, in your head, girding your loins? Do you guys know what that means? Girding your loins means is that back when men used to dress, you know, in skirts or togas or whatever it was that they wore that was not pants—that where they wanted to do something, they needed to do something, they would have to raise up their skirt and they would gird their loins, I meaning they had to wrap this thing around their loins so that they could run, they could do something. It would be our modern day equivalent of rolling up our sleeves, getting to work. And so what this means is that because you are certain the hope you have does not waver, it's not an illusion, it's not a a fragile flickering thing, because of the solidity of what is lit up before you, the hope of thy kingdom come. Prepare then for action. Don't let yourself fall to passivity or despair. Don't waste time in depression as if you don't know how it's going to Turn out. You know the end. Run forward into it. Gird your loins. Pick up stride and go because time is fleetingly passing you by. And you know the goodness so you can be confident in the way that you run forward, not wasting time running back or thinking about the past. Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully On the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed this is what the doctrine of assurance of faith is intended to do so that we don't run tentatively to our deaths, to which we all know it's coming and saying I don't know what's going to happen on the other side maybe I will be saved maybe I won't be maybe I've committed too many sins to be forgiven I'm not assured of my salvation so I am running tentatively, gingerly, scraping onto life I pass into death. Biblically, the doctrine of the assurance of faith that comes upon us and says, be assured, you are saved to the everlasting, eternal glory of Christ. You are saved. That assurance of salvation means that I know how it is going to end. I know the fullness of, and the finality of my inheritance. There is a grace that's going to be revealed at the final time. Not a works. There's going to be a grace that's going to be revealed. And so I can set my mind fully upon it. Let me give you the two most important, at least to my mind, or most helpful, historical illustrations that has helped us kind of glue this thinking in my brain. When I read passages like this, I say therefore, set your mind fully on the grace that is to be revealed. One is that y'all, I think y'all know this, I'm not even sure if it's true, I think it might be apocryphal, but it says that Cortez, in his great ambition, do you guys know this? Cortez, the, the great Spanish uh, explorer that when he reached the new world, which you know America back in that ancient time, that when he came to the new world that he was concerned that his men would want to turn back for Europe that they would not want to settle. And he was so fixed on the new world, not the old, but the new, that he commanded his men, and the men burned the ships. And it was his way of letting every single one, and especially those who may be fearful, who may be thinking, all right, I'm going to put my heart partly into this new world, into this new life, but part of me is still glued and can't forget the past and all that it held. And I am afraid. And he wanted to focus their minds. And the way that he did this and sent a powerful message to every single one is saying, the ships are gone. Set them on fire. There is no turning back. Set your mind fully on the grace that is to be revealed in the coming kingdom of God in Christ Jesus and the other historical passage which has helped me immensely into the focus on this new world and not a living of one foot into the kingdom of God and the having to drag along the other foot which is still anchored in the old world and the old life and the old nature and in the flesh but that can pick up both feet and run in the spirit is this passage by Charles Lindbergh and so uh, no one had done it before no one knew that uh, until someone does it, you don't know that it can be done it's only a theory but he believed that he could take a plane at that time in 1927 and he could fly across the Atlantic and he could make a transatlantic flight and so he takes off in the spirit of St. Louis and he just takes off and he's not sure because no one has yet to do it he's not sure if he's going to make it but there is a point that this is one of the, I think the the best part of his journal probably there's a point where he reaches what he calls the point of no return. There's no going back now. The point of no return. I, I love those words. There's a point of no return. It says, I burned the last bridge behind me. All through the storm and darkest night, my instincts were anchored on the continent of North America as though an invisible cord still tied me to its coasts. In an emergency, of the ice-filled clouds had emerged if oil pressure had begun to drop, if a cylinder had started missing, I would have turned back toward America and home. Now my anchor is in Europe, on a continent I've never seen. Now I'll never think of turning back. I've reached a point of no return. And now my home and my only chance for safety is in the future, not the past. I've burned my last bridge behind me is set your mind fully on the hope that is to be given you in Christ Jesus in the coming kingdom of God, is to stop playing with Christianity and stop saying, I want the best of both. Can I not be a good Christian and have everything that this world offers too? And to say, I've made a decision here. I can, I can no more be married to two people, to two continents. I can be to two people. I can no more have citizenship in two places. I've made a decision, I've made a choice, and I am taking my entire life and bringing it into alignment, no longer with the past, but in conformity with the future. Be self controlled, it says. Prepare your minds for action. Be self controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform in the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance as obedient children do not be conformed do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance there is that word is i don't know it's i think it's about a 14 or 16 letter word in the greek it's this huge word that talks about a shape and being cast into the mold of a shape and the biblical conception is that previously you belonged and had citizenship and identity with the old world and the old kingdom of this world and so your life was cast into conformity it fit into that shape and now what the people that Peter writes to in this community this church start to understand that I no longer fit into the old world structures into its selfishness and its hatred and its bitterness and its disbelief I no longer fit. And they are being persecuted because they no longer fit into this world smoothly. Its values are not their values. What they love are not what this world loves. And so they are banging this square peg into the round hole of this world. Peter's writing and saying, don't you see that it's not primarily about the fact that you no longer fit into this world, but you're being fit into another world. And the whole reason why that you feel out of step with what's going on here is because you are already being made for what is going to be in the future. Your life is already being shaped and being informed by the values that exist already in heaven. We talk about our church as a community of the future of hope and one in which people can see a little bit of what heaven is going to be like in the future, in the present. That, could, that, that reality, that truth is what First Peter is so much about. That we are already living our lives in the present already in conformity with the kingdom of God that will happen when Jesus Christ is fully revealed so that we must live our lives not to be hostile to this world, not to be aggressive in such a way as to make ourselves obnoxious in our faith so that we flaunt our not being fit into the power structures and the prejudices of this current temporary time. But there's a natural way that we must make our stands as we make our decision of not straddling two lives of two worlds of two ages, but to make our firm declaration of identity, of being a child of the kingdom, of being a child of God, and therefore as obedient children, living out of step and a conformity with the sinfulness of this world and the holiness of God that is to be in heaven. I've quoted from this movie before and because uh, it for me was something that was just such a... Um, instructive movie, aside from be- being uh, an enjoyable one, and I, have, I do not mean that, that all lawyers are like this, but, and that's what I mean by instructive, but he just said something at the end of, this, end of this movie which I just thought was so good, and the movie's called The Rainmaker, which was, I don't know, most of you have probably not seen it, it's Matt Damon's uh, fledgling role when he was just, uh, just, I don't know, he must have been not more than 21 or 22, and in this movie he's, he's, a, he's a lawyer just starting out and full of ideals. He's a lawyer because he wants to help people. He's a lawyer because he has this outmoded understanding of law that it can be for justice and for helping people whom the system is somehow not working for. that like He wants to be the defender. So he becomes a lawyer. And what happens, he takes up this case of this old uh, woman whose son has been <laughs> denied health coverage by an insurance company and uh, for a condition and therefore this is her, her son is, is dying because he's not getting the coverage of his health care that he needs. Anyway, and so he, as a, he's defending her, defending her. He comes up. He's just this young buck lawyer who's taking up this case because she didn't have money to pay a proper lawyer. And so he comes up against this health insurance company. And he's this pivotal meeting between him and this wonderful John Boyd. John Boyd is playing the lawyer that is representing the health company and he, they sit at opposite sides of this of this long table in this conference room and in this long table Matt Damon is is in his bad fitting suit you know a fresh scrub this can be and just kind of saying you know in his ideals and talking about how that that, that his client is being denied the health coverage that he that she, this that he, she and he needs and is owed her under her policy but There is absolutely no give on the other side as John Boyd plays the elder lawyer flanked by this team of lawyers who are not going to give an inch. And so at one point in the scene, Matt Damon understands nothing he says, no precedent of law, no reason of logic is going to sway this individual from giving up a cent. And he just looks back and looks at John Boyd's character and says, you even remember when you sold out? Do you even remember when law used to be about justice and you have turned it into this thing which you are presently standing for? Do you even remember when you sold out? And as he faces his own temptations into corruption, the movie ends on this one paragraph which I just thought was just excellent. And the movie ends with these words and it says, There is a line that every lawyer faces in every case that he doesn't mean to cross, he just does it. And then you're just another lawyer joke, another shark in the dirty waters. And if you cross that line enough times, the line disappears. That line exists for lawyers in one way, that line exists for teachers in another That line exists for researchers in another way. That line exists for graphic designers in another way. That line exists for corporate finance people in another way. That line exists for pastors in another way. But there are all these great lines by which God is not trying to hem us in or box us in, but to guide us safely to heaven. Saying, always saying, this is the path, walk in it. In other words, this is the path to blessing. This is the path to life. This is the way that your greatest joy will be made full in abundance of blessing. Walk in these lines. And every single time we cross that line, something inside of us says, don't do this. I don't care what you say. I don't care how you justify it. You know in your heart, this voice says, don't do this. And the frightening thing as you cross that line over and over again. The first time you cross it, something inside screams. And you feel a rupture in your soul and a diminishment of your joy. And your brow starts to cloud in the way most unchildlike. And the second time you cross it, there is a strong yelling, a defiance of what you are doing. And the third time you cross it, there is just a statement, you know this is wrong, right? You're going to do it, but uh, this is wrong. And the fourth time, there is a whimper, and then the fifth time, a whisper, and vice-frightening of all. The line, even though it exists eternally, in the way, in the character of God and His holiness, you are no longer able to hear as that line has from you the cultivating of a healthy and biblically God-honoring and scripture-informed conscience is one of the most beautiful gifts that God can give to anybody. To silence and to go against your conscience, to cauterize your conscience in the words of scripture, is something that will make it impossible for you to experience the joy and the blessedness of life because the conscience is that internal mechanism that God has gifted man with that learns the value, the good, and the right. And so stolen money that goes against that conscience can only be ex- enjoyed for a brief period of time. Eventually, the way that God has so constructed us, what happens is that we end up gaining something, the world even. We end up losing our soul. And God, as He has fixed us into a kingdom, a community, a fellowship of people who love obedience to the lines. that these are something that is seen to us not as something that is binding to us, but a safeguard for us. God desires that we would be obedient and live in congruency with Heaven. Is constructed along the template of these lines, and those lines are now given to us as we have the first beginnings of the kingdom in all of these, what we call our church fellowships. I hope you understand clearly what I'm saying. If you know me at all, <laughs> if you know me at all, I am just the last person that is sitting around with like a wagging finger saying, Rule breaker. Rule breaker, you shouldn't have done that. I'm, I'm like the last person who's about living out life in the kind of like a rigid, ossified, fossilized, kind of like just obedience to rules. I'm very much about freedom. I, I love freedom. And it, I love it when the scripture said that in the spirit there is a freedom. But Augustine put it right in the way that he says it. Love what is good. Love what is good love what is good, and then do whatever you want. That freedom is a living out of life in congruency, in obedience to God in Christ Jesus. And to every child of God, obedience is not this horrible word that brings back images of an unkind, unjust, and unfair parent. Obedience is that word to every child of God which we love to do. We love to obey as God only desires our good and our greatest blessing so as obedient children do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance but just as he who called you is holy so be holy in all that you do for it is written be holy because I am holy be holy because as it is written I am holy and he is quoting Leviticus which is Peter's application of the principle he just said. He's saying, "Don't do you not read your Old Testaments? The entire Old Testament was written for you. There we see the character of God, and this we live in conformity of it to be holy as He is holy." And so, let me conclude on this one last note. How does it work? And let me just address that question. How does living hope, everything before the therefore, produce holy living, which is everything after the therefore? In in uh, verse uh, 13. Let me just say that one more time just to get a, a clear picture of what question that I'm answering in this last point. How does a living hope in the future, in the inheritance, the grace to be revealed, produce in the present a holy living? Because that's the way that these two parts fit in First Peter. There's a living hope, praise be to God. Therefore, now set your mind fully on that hope and be Holy. So how does a living hope produce holy living, therefore? And the best way for me to explain it is in an illustrative form in an illustration. I used to watch this old TV show called MASH on about the 4077. Uh, MASH, which is a surgical a triage a, a emergency unit that was in a, during the Korean War. And you know what? I, I used to try to watch it with my folks, actually. I used, to, I used to love the show as, as, a, as a kid and, uh, and I, would watch, I, would, I would watch MASH and as I'm watching MASH I would, uh, my, sometimes my parents would, would happen on it and I'd say, Mom and Dad, you've got to watch the show it's really funny, it's about Korea and so why would you not want to watch it it's about, you know, Korea and they would never they would never watch it with me and it was not only until later years I realized why it's because it wasn't funny for them they lived through it so it wasn't, it wasn't funny with the, their depiction of war-torn life in, in Korea at that time was for them a, a reality and a, and, a, and a painful memory. It could not be something that could be served up as comedy as it was for me who had never gone through it. But MASH depicts this, the story of these doctors who are, have been taken out of one place and now are in another place in, a, in this foreign land. And as they are there, it is depicting all the horrible conditions of being a mash triage surgical unit in the midst of a war torn country. And as they're living there, one of my favorite, favorite characters, I can't even remember the old guy, the first the first guy that he replaced, but one of my favorite characters is this guy named B J Honeycut. You guys remember that mustache? And just this, he just is seems like the nicest guy, <laughs> he's guy <got> B J Honeycut. <laughs> And, and he's this good guy, and he's just trying to be to, to do the best as he can in the midst of this, of this war-torn situation where there is so much anxiety, there's so much pressure, and there's danger and fearfulness everywhere. As he lives out his present existence, there comes this amazing temptation in this one drop of sunlight that comes into his life in the form of this world-renowned, famous journalist named Aggie O'Shea. She's a fictional character, but played by the very real and beautiful Susan St. James, and so she comes this beautiful woman comes into into their into their compound and she's witty she's intelligent and they start to hit it off and, and instantly a chemistry starts to spark between the two of them and soon feelings that neither of them can control start to emerge and grow and start to set fire to them and so eventually there is the inevitable confrontation that in the midst of a tent where the two of them are just alone they start to admit these feelings that have emerged over the for this episode and Aggie O'Shea she presents him with a proposition and says we should have an affair and he, he looks back at her and says but you know I'm married and she says I know it's okay what I'm offering you is no strings attached and he looks at her with longing and yearning, this thing that would, could, for the next few weeks or months, provide some succor and comfort in a world of turmoil and pain. And is wondering how he's going to say no to that. And I'm waiting in this episode, wondering what is he going to say and how is he going to respond this pivotal decision in his life. And he says, I can't. I can't. She looks back at him, and her eyes start welling up with tears. Why? I said, no strings attached. He said, the problem is, I already have a string attached, and it goes around my waist and binds me to wherever I am, and stretches all the way out of, this North, out of Korea, out of this continent, and goes all the way to North America, into this little house in Mill Valley, California, where there is my wife and my children. And this lifeline is my only supply of oxygen by which I can breathe heaven's air in my present purgatory. And if I had this affair with you, I would cut this line. I'm living not in the present. I am living on hope that I believe I will one day see my wife and be reunited with my children. And I hold on to that as a lifeline. And it brings me my joy, and it informs my conduct. I have a line attached. And the episode closes in this beautiful image. She understands. And she paints, she's also a gifted painter. She paints for this little watercolor drawing. And The last scene of of this Mesh episode is it shows BJ Kanika. He's got this lifesaver around him. it's got this line that says, To Mill Valley, California. (laughs) Awesome. Wherever you are as a Christian, you must be assured that there is a a lifesaver around your waist named Jesus Christ. And this line that says the Holy Spirit in promise. And this line leads the kingdom of God and the inheritance by which you will gain eternity and joy forever. And it must inform your conduct and fulfill your joy and this is what we hold on to as people of the next age of the kingdom of God not primarily a people planted here it is a living on hope as we close in prayer I would ask for you to think of what we started with don't think of 5 years ago 10 years ago, 20 years ago Don't, don't think in those terms if you're going to think about the past anchor yourself in 2000 years ago where the pivotal moment in history occurred but mostly think about the future and think about eternity and your life in eternity. This time, 40 years from now, this time, 30 years from now, this time, a year from now, this time, six months from now, this time, a week from now, actually no one knows the hour of the day. You will face Jesus Christ, this invisible one whom you have known and loved your entire life. And when you look to his face, what you desire to see, how you desire to be greeted in heaven, the embrace that awaits you. Let this inform your conduct in the present, that a living hope will produce holy living. As we pray, I want to invite the worship team to come up. I you come before the Lord and say to the Father, I want to be marked not as a child primarily of this age, of this kingdom, of this world, but of the next age, the next world, the new heavens and the new earth, and the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. I want to live that life now in the present even as the kingdom of God is rapidly expanding. Father, would you so fill me with your Holy Spirit, my lifeline and bond me, God, to the kingdom of God and allow me to to be a transformative agent. As Father, as we live no longer conformity to the evil desires that we followed in ignorance, when we allowed ourselves passively to be conformed and shaped by the influences and the things of this world, and how they bend us out of shape. And I'm praying for many people now, Father, in our congregation who need just to be reminded of who they truly are. Not as a child of this age, but as a child of God in the kingdom. we we'll ask that you would release vision, Father, onto many here. That they would be reminded of this is who you are. That they would see themselves, Father, as children of God, of belonging and identified with the kingdom of God and that they would allow their lives to be shaped by not what the world desires to conform them to, but the vision that you are redeeming them to. God, we thank you, Father, for the kingdom. We thank you, God, for the anchor that is Christ, who has already gone ahead of us, an anchor who holds beyond the veil of death, who is at the other end of this lifeline, who pulls us irrevocably, irresistibly toward home but we say this God in grace in Christ Jesus name I think most of you have been in church long enough to know the the root meaning of the concept holiness biblically holiness to be holy to the Lord it's not about being good or moral fundamentally the root of that word holiness has as its fundamental to be set apart. To be set apart, consecrated. I'm God's. I belong to Him. I want to be like Him as a child longs to be like His Father. I want to be like Him. I want to have His character be what rubs off on me and reconforms my life to be like Him. Do you want us to just pray that as we close our time together? God, Everything I'm just saying, God, I, I pray. Father, let me be yours, God. We say that together as a church, Lord Jesus. That we would be yours as a body belongs to a head. As a body is instructed by a head. And God, as a body does not function as its own or of its own volition. But obeys the will. God, we ask that we would be like that, God, as a church. As individuals, would you set us apart consecrated to belong to you. but we say these things in the grace given to us. God, we say this in Christ Jesus' name.